You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you something, people. I'm a huge sock guy. And it's funny. I've noticed my whole life I've always appreciated a good pair of socks. But what I've noticed lately is I always get them for presents or I'll go to the Dollar Tree and they actually have cool socks. I'll get them. And they just keep accumulating in my drawer and accumulating. So when I sit there and want to find a pair I want, I have to go to the very bottom and I pass all these other socks that I haven't worn in months. So if you're a fellow sock person, do me a favor, rotate. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my guest, uh, you know, it's funny. One Saturday morning, I was watching Access, and there was a documentary about Bad Company. And I saw my guest. He was on it. And I said, I bet he'd be a good good on Cooper Talk. And I, I looked him up, and oh, my God, what a, what a resume this gentleman has had. He's done, like, everything in the music world, and he's even a published author. And my guest is uh, Danny Goldberg. How you doing, Danny? How are you? Good. Now, now you look. You know, I've seen pictures of you. You look fashionable. Are you a fan of the sock? I like comfortable socks. I, I, I'm not worried about their fashion value, but I like. Uh, I'm in New York City. It's cold today, so I got some uh, thick uh, alpaca socks that my wife got me. Very comfortable. Great. Now, I have to ask you. You've been involved in the music business for such a long time and done so many aspects of it. When did you first fall in love with music? Um, you know, I liked music. My parents played a lot of music when I was growing up, classical and folk music mostly. But, you know, sort of the inflection point for me was, you know, when I hit adolescence. Uh, I'm a child of the 60s. You know, I was uh, born in 1950, so playing quintessential baby boomer. And uh, I would say, um, you know, the first time, I, I remember I was at some, uh, sometime between 10th and 11th grade, I, heard, I was at a party and a guy... Uh, had an acoustic guitar there. A lot of people were into folk then, and he played Love Me, I'm a Liberal by Phil Oaks. And uh, that really blew my mind because it was, it was not just a song. It was about uh, politics and about stuff I was thinking about. And, um, you know, then by the next year, uh, when I, uh, uh, friends of mine uh, uh, turned me on to, to, to marijuana, I, I, I was a full-on... Uh, lover of, of the music at the time, you know, which was, you know, Beatles the Stones and particularly Bob Dylan and Jefferson Airplane and Love and Spoonful and blues artists like Sonny Rue Williamson. And it just became certainly through high school, uh, you know, uh, you know, like for a lot of people, that's, that, that, that's what music meant the most to me. When I discovered it a few years later, it was, you could, it was something called the music business and that, and that there were jobs that you didn't have to be a musician to get, uh, you know, I I, uh, I was quite pleased. And uh, 50 years later, I'm still trying to hang on. Well, now, you, you were, at a younger age, you were a, uh, a music journalist. How'd you get involved with that? Well, I, I, you know, I dropped out of college. I was a druggy kid. I got over it, thank God, by the time I was 18. But uh, And I needed a job, and there was a, you know, uh, I, 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 there was the New York Times that said Clerk Magazine, and I just, uh, I'd written for the high school newspaper, and the other jobs available were called Key Punch Operator, which was kind of a precursor to computer coding, and uh, I just thought magazine sounded better. It turned out to be Billboard, and it was, uh, the job was in the chart department calling stores about, uh, what was selling because there were no barcodes or anything that was all done manually. And then um, I discovered there were people on the other end of the office that were not that much older than me that were uh, 
getting in free to concerts, getting free records, and getting paid to write their opinions about that. And uh, I think that sounds like a good job for me. So I talked my way into getting assignments uh, when nobody else wanted an assignment in the office. You know, they would they would let me write on a freelance basis. And uh, you know, the minute you have a byline, you exist. So uh, for you know, sort of those years from '68 till around '72. Um, you know, I was able to make my living as sort of a sometimes with full-time jobs, sometimes freelance as a so-called rock journalist. I was never great at it. I didn't have the discipline that the really good writers had, but I was good enough at a time when the business was expanding and there was a premium on youth because you know the the you know the people in their early twenties kind of understood what was going on better than even people five years older than them. So you know, in the nineties, I think a lot of people got into the business through hip hop, same thing. There's just a cultural divide where older people just didn't get the music. So that was, uh, you know, I did that for a few years and I really enjoyed it. But I, you know, at a certain point, I, I realized, you know, I realized it wasn't the career path, uh, and I and I gravitated into the business side. Now, in in your bio on your webpage, people's webpage is goldve.com. It said you reviewed Woodstock. Were you actually at Woodstock? Or, or... I, I was, yeah. It was, you know, the dynamic at, at Billboard, which still exists. In those days, there were three weekly trade magazines just about the music business, Billboard, Record World, and Cashbox, and the one that survived is Billboard. You know, the older writers, which in those days, old meant somebody like in their 30s, just didn't care about this new kind of rock and roll. They wanted assignments like going to a nightclub where you'd get free drinks and a dinner. So um, none of these staff writers wanted to go, and the editor said, look, do you want to go to this thing? And I, uh, I had heard about it, and I, I was quite, you know, immediately said yes. So uh, I, I had a hotel room. I went there in a limo with the publicist, Jane Friedman, for the Woodside Festival, and, uh, and, was, and was there and wrote a very enthusiastic review about it. I was, I was really, really moved by you know, the audience, all the things that you can see in the movie. The movie pretty much reflects the reality as I remember it. But, uh, but, but uh, yeah, I was pretty excited to be there. Well, looking back at it, what made it so special to you? Well, there were two dimensions to it. I mean, the magnet was the artist, obviously. It was Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and the Airplane and the Who and Joan Baez and Richie Havens and, you know, Santana. I'd never heard of Santana before, but when I first got there, they were playing and, and uh, you know, it just really, really blew my mind how good they were. Uh, but, but a lot of the other artists already were, 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 you know, the biggest rock acts of the day, except for the Beatles and Stones and Dylan. Uh, you know, Johnny Winter was great there. So the music, the music was certainly great. And uh, that was the magnet and it created the, the, the sense of community, which turns out to be so much bigger than anybody thought it was going to be, or certainly than I anticipated. And to see, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that were so into the kind of hippie feeling, guys with long hair, and, you know, people, a lot of people were high. I was not high at, at, at Woodstock, except, but I felt high because there was a sweetness and a sense of camaraderie that was real. It, it, it wasn't sustainable as any kind of a political movement or social movement, but it absolutely was a very uh, warm sense of community that people had. And I was really grateful to 
to be a part of it. So, so I think the combination of the magnitude of it, which demonstrated the size of kind of this counterculture rock audience, and the music itself, and then that particular festival it did, as the saying goes, have very good vibes. I mean, just a month later, there was one in San Francisco called Altamont that did not have good vibes, where there were bad security, bad drugs, and, you know, but, but, but Woodstock, you know, was pretty much the way it's been described in my experience. Of course, so, I'm one of the ones who described it. Right. So, so you go from journalism, and then you uh, move into the, how do you get into the record business? Like I know you went well, to in between, I was a publicist. You know, when when you're a journalist, I mean, again, I had no college education and no skills, except that I knew a lot of people who wrote about rock and roll and had this kind of irrational confidence that I knew what was cool. Um, and the other job that you could get if you knew if you if you could do that was as a publicist, because the record companies uh, all had publicity departments, and then there were these independent PR firms that artists and their managers would hire. Uh, so I was at some at one point, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in the uh, near the end of 1972, um, I got a job working for a company that was called Salters and Roskin. They were a big old school show business firm. They had uh, Frank Sinatra and Barbara Streisand and Ringling Brothers Barnum and Billy Circus and Broadway shows and stuff. And Lee Salters, uh, you know, who seemed ancient to me at the time, he's probably in his 50s. Uh, you know, was was uh, was one of the grand elders of show business PR, and he wanted a young guy with long hair who knew this rock thing because that was a new source of business and a growing business. And you know, there was a, a mutual friend recommended me for it, so so I got a job as a publicist there. I had done some freelance PR work and had had a brief stint at a record company before that, but the turning point was working for Lee Salters and really kind of learning the craftsmanship of publicity. It wasn't just about asking my friends for favors, it was about writing the right kind of press release, understanding to to kind of create what, what he would call an angle, you know, a, a journalistic hook to, to make a, a, a client story attractive to editors and TV producers and so on. And so, uh, so I, I, um, I ended up being a better publicist than I was a journalist. And uh, Led Zeppelin became a client within some months of my being there, and my association with them, you know, was kind of a big game changer in terms of my reputation in the in the business. How big was Led Zeppelin at that time? Oh, they were the biggest band in in the world by that time. This was 1973, and the album, the previous album that had come out had been the one without a title that had Stairway to Heaven on it. And then the first one I was involved with was <coughs> Houses of the Holy, which was their fifth album. So they'd already put out four albums and they'd become big right away on their first album. So they were they were huge. They had not gotten very good press though. They were just not a, a press band. They had become big through uh, radio, FM radio, and there was a sort of a snobbery with kind of the Rolling Stone writers at a time when Rolling Stone really was an important tastemaker in the journalistic world. So they, they and the same syndrome had happened in England where just the writers were a little bit older than the fan base of Zeppelin and, and, and were kind of snobbish about what these next younger people were into. And, and Zeppelin, then when they didn't get good reviews, just ignored the press for a few years. So by 73, they wanted to readdress it. And, and, uh, and I was lucky enough to be the guy in America that got to... Uh, to, to tell their story. Is that a little 
intimidating to be a publicist telling the story of such a huge, huge band? Well, you know, their manager, Peter Grant, uh, was over 300 pounds and had been a professional wrestler, a tough, cockney guy, you know, from the poor neighborhoods of London and who, uh, who certainly, he was intimidating. He was just not a guy I ever wanted to be mad at me. Um, he turned out to be really incredibly nice to me and, you know, really, really supported me for many years in the business and, and, and changed my life because he was the first manager I really got to watch do his thing up close. But it was, it was nerve wracking. I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to let them down. I didn't want to look like an idiot. And, uh, you know, but, but I, I knew what to do. I, I, I had, a, I'd been around uh, the journalistic world enough and, and then had been around the PR firm enough to understand the way they thought about journalism and angles. I, I, I just, I, I did know, you know, I, so I kind of knew what to do, but, but, but I was in constant terror of disappointing, uh, you know, the band. So you're, you're a publicist now then. How did you get involved with Swan Song Records? I know it was their label, but how did that happen? Well, I did publicity on the 73 tour in the context of working for the PR firm they hired. And, and I, I um, uh, you know, the idea that, we, that I had was I couldn't convince the journalists, the, the critics, that, that Zeppelin was good because they had already decided that they weren't quite as good as whoever they liked. Uh, you know, but, but I, I definitely could convince them that they were big. And, and, you know, because they were so big, they were selling out stadiums. And so that approach of just they're the biggest, um, you know, worked. And they got the most press they'd ever, and the best press they'd had. And, and, and I didn't really know for sure if the band even had read the stuff or cared about it. We would, you know, we would send them uh, Xeroxes of the articles. Uh, but then at the end of the year, I got a call from their American lawyer and said uh, that, um, Peter wanted to fly me to England uh, because they wanted to offer me a job. So I, you know, uh, they were they were uh, uh, they had made the deal with Atlantic to create what would become Swan Song Records. They didn't have the name of it yet. It was, it was just about six months later. I think Jimmy Page thought of the name. So it, it was the sort of unnamed Zeppelin label, and uh, I immediately said yes. I knew it was a big opportunity. Now, what was your role in when you got that job? Well, I, my role was, you know, to first of all continue to do publicity for them or to resume doing publicity for them in the United States. I mean, my role was limited to the United States, but, you know, it's a big country and a big market and it was an important market to them. And uh, then, and, and as well as the other artists that they were signing, the first album was uh, Maggie Bell, who's a great Scottish singer. Um, and then uh, Bad Company's uh, first album was the next album. And that was a huge commercial hit, you know, it went to number one. So I, I oversaw the publicity, which was my strong suit. And then I also was the liaison to Atlantic Records, because Swanson wasn't a standalone label. It was really more of an imprint, where the Ze members of Zeppelin had a certain amount of money they could spend to make records and sign the bands. But all of the marketing was done by Atlantic. And the only in-house marketing thing in America was me and a couple of people I hired. So I was also liaison to Atlantic for the radio promotion department, the sales department, and to the booking agencies for the new artists like like Bad Company and later they had this band the pretty things to try to, you know, help set them up on American tours. So that, that those were the areas that I was responsible for. Now during that time 
what was your focus on your future? Did you, you know you'd be in the music business, but what, what were you l- l- foreseeing happening to you? Oh, I had no idea. I was really just in the moment trying to do a good job that day. And, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I wasn't planning a future. I was just trying to, trying to stay in the zone. Now, why did you leave Swanson? You know, I had a falling out with Peter Grant in, in 76. I'd been there about three years, and there was an artist at that time I was managing who never became big, a singer-songwriter, but he wanted me to stop managing her if I was going to stay there, and I just felt you no know, one's going to tell me what to do. And we had a disagreement about um, who the, the, the agency should be for how bad, the next bad company tour should be done. Because, you know, it was things that, in retrospect, are not important at all and frankly in retrospect I was really I don't blame Peter at all for like creating boundaries on you know what I was going to do with his company but you know I was you know 25 26 years old I was still 25 yeah then you know and and uh, uh, just felt I didn't uh, I want to do things my own way and he wanted to do things his way with his company so we later uh, made up and I had a wonderful talk with him a few weeks before you know in the, kind of the year before he passed away but it was just it was just one of those things so then now what what is your direction after you you lose uh after you leave that and you don't that job well i knew i knew the one thing i felt you know i wanted to be a manager and a publicist but i didn't have any credibility as a manager but i had a lot of credibility as a publicist i've been doing led zeppelin's publicity for the last three years who who, like the best credential you could have even today people are fascinated by led zeppelin but at that time in the 70s it was they were literally the biggest rock band in the in the the world including in america so i was able to get get initial group of clients very quickly to the pr firm which i had the imaginative name of danny goldberg inc and uh (laughs) the the uh, uh the first client i think i got was kiss who were also very big by then and who were, you know, I knew their manager, Bill O'Coin and Gene and Paul were fascinated by Zeppelin. And then I got um, uh, Electric Light Orchestra and their manager, Don Arden, also had his own label called Jet Records. And then um, I had a friend named Paul Fishkin, who's still a really good friend of mine, who was um, president of Beersville Records, which doesn't exist anymore, but at the time had... It was created by Bob Dylan and Janis Joplin's former manager, Albert Grossman, and they, their big band. They had Todd Rundgren, all of his first dozen records or so, and they had uh, Foghat, which is kind of a forgotten band now, but they were you know, platinum band, very big on the radio stations, big concert attraction. They're, the songs of theirs that have survived are Slow Ride and Fool for the City. But it, so, so I had Bearsville, I had Jet Records, including Yellow, and I had... Yes, and that was a good nucleus to start a PR firm on. Now, eventually in, in 80, you were involved with no nukes. What? How did that come around? Well, it, it, what happened then was um, coming out of the PR firm, Paul Fishkin, who I mentioned before, uh, really became my closest friend. And he, at a certain point, started dating Stevie Nicks. And through a set of circumstances, you know, we you kind of... 50 years, so trying to compress these things. You know, we were able, uh, a year or so later, we put together a label called Modern Records that released Stevie Nicks' solo albums. But she had an obligation to Fleetwood Mac, um, so we couldn't really start on the first Stevie Nicks record. They, they, they were finishing up um, the album that, 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 that was released as Tusk, 
and so we couldn't really start on the Stevie stuff for like a year, but I, we had the deal. The Atlantic Records also funded and distributed that company, and um, so there was sort of time where I wasn't that busy until Stevie was going to start recording. And uh, I had known, um, when I had the PR firm, one of my clients was a guy named John Hall, who was best known. He was a guitar player and songwriter for a band called Orleans, which had a couple of big hits at the time. Still the one and dance with me. And then they broke up. John put out a solo record, which didn't do very well. But he'd asked me to do publicity for the solo record. We, we knew each other socially. And when that flopped, he said, look, there's no point doing anything more for the, so the record, but I've got this project I want to help on. He was a physics major and knew a lot about um, the environment. And he later became a United States congressman. Um, but at that time, he was in Orleans. You know, you know he's the guy who'd been in Orleans. And, and there was a nuclear plant being built um, near where he lived in upstate New York. And uh, he got artists like James Taylor and Carly Simon and Bonnie Ray and other people to sign on to this petition, to, you know, create this thing, Artists for Safe Energy. And uh, it was a big issue at the, at the time. And then um, there was an accident at a nuclear plant called Three Mile Island in, in Pennsylvania that put it on the front pages. This is like 79, I guess. And, um, you know, they decided to do these big concerts. Now that's become a big issue, not just a local issue. And they ended up having five nights at Madison Square Garden. John recruited uh, Jackson Brown, who was at the peak of his career then, running on empty, had just come out. And Jackson was also obsessed with the um, environmental hazards of nuclear power that the nuclear waste could leak and cause cancer and uh, you know the half-life of the radiation was like for hundreds of years and they were also uh, uranium mining was destabilizing Native American land so Jackson became um, uh, this sort of uh, unofficial leader of organizing all that ended up getting Springsteen to headline the last two nights and other things like that and I just had a feeling that this should be documented as a movie. And, um, you know, uh, eventually I was introduced to Jackson and pitched it to him. And he, uh, he, he said he thought it was a good idea, which is kind of remarkable to me since I'd never made a movie before and had no idea how to do it, why I was able to convince him that I was the one to do this. But, uh, you know, I asked him about it 30 years later at a, at a reunion thing of it. And he just said, I don't know, you had this look in your eye like you were going to get it done. So I ended up partnering with a guy named Julian Schlossberg, who's, who, who, who came out of the movie business. He'd been a Paramount executive and knew the mechanics of filmmaking and, and had the same politics, and I knew the music. And together we produced and directed that movie, No Nukes, that was released in June of 1980. And it was the first uh, movie that Springsteen was in. And the last 20 or 25 minutes, you know, he dominates it. It's incredible. And, and uh, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Ash had reunited for it. And they were in it, and James and Carly were at the peak of their fame. And uh, Gil Scott Heron, who I'd gone to high school with and who'd written this incredible anti-nuclear song called We All Almost Lost Detroit was in it. And it was, uh, it was really uh, incredible honor to be in, you know, it was, it was, it was uh, it, it's the thing that sort of showed me that you could be in the music business and also kind of have a political voice because of the, connectivity between artists and their fans could be important in certain 
certain political ideas. The No Nudge movement was certainly successful. I mean, the the, the 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 between litigation and public opinion, and you know, the the, the construction of No to Zero within a few years. Now you you know so you at this point in your life you you have a great track record. You've worn a lot of hats. Then in '83 you start uh, Gold Mountain Entertainment. You become president of that. What made you decide to start that company and what acts, did you have certain acts that you were thinking of targeting? No, I was just, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the label that Paul and I created for Stevie, Modern Records, uh, we put out two albums of hers. We tried signing other artists, didn't do very well with that. Her two albums were incredibly successful. They both were number one albums. But my role was, now Stevie, at the beginning, Stevie didn't have a solo career. We had to kind of create a solo career for her again, you know, and it was really intensely engaging and exciting. And I introduced her to Jimmy Iovine, who ended up producing the uh, Belladonna album, her first solo album, which, you know, and, and all sorts of other things where I was really deeply involved. A few years passed, and now she's managed by Irving Azoff. Her career's fine. Uh, it's all in the zone. And I had... Uh, Less, you know, my my, I didn't have much to do, and uh, Paul and I, um, again today, we're very very close friends, and at the beginning we were friends, but at that time we were having issues with each other, and I just wanted to leave and do my own thing, so I sold my my piece of modern, and um, you know ended up getting a deal. Jerry Moss was the guy who ran A and M Records, and. He liked me and he gave me kind of this platform for a label that was called Gold Mountain. And the Gold Mountain label didn't do particularly well. I had a couple of records I'm proud of. One of them was by a singer-songwriter named Bruce Coburn, a great Canadian poetic artist. But but I had the offices there and I, I started uh, management as well. And, and uh, you know, uh, it wasn't about targeting. You can't target artists, or I can't anyway. Uh, you know... Um, Years ago, I, I mean, this is an indirect answer to your question, but I think it'll explain the mentality or the, the or how how some of this works for me anyway. You know, I worked with uh, uh, Phil Walden, who uh, years later he was a great uh, figure in the music business. He's passed away now, but he had been Otis Redding's manager until Otis died, and then he was the manager of the Allman Brothers for the first whatever ten years of their career and had them on his label and then and then you know he was saying you know people always ask you how do you find artists but the truth is they find you and that's been my experience also it's not you can't just target oh i'd love to manage bob dylan i mean i'm sure there are some people that are so powerful and and clever that they can really target somebody but to me it's about seeing who's available and among the universe of people who are available um, who do I also like, you know, and it's a, it's a mysterious process. I've never really been very good at, uh, targeting people, but I've been good at taking advantage of opportunities when they were, when they were in front of me or in my peripheral vision. So with the management company, the first artist that, that, that did well for us, and I think the first artist we started managing was Belinda Carlisle, who would, the Go-Go's had split up and she was making, had a solo career and I knew her lawyer and, you know, I was having lunches with a lawyer saying, Hey, I'm, I want to manage acts and, her lawyer said, you know, would you be interested in, in Belinda? And I had been a Go-Go's fan, and I needed a client. And, and I liked her, and I met her, and I thought she was really, uh, you know, star quality. And, and, and she was in the middle of recording her first solo record that a guy named Michael Lloyd produced, and it ended up having a big hit called Man About You. So 
that was a gold record and then we were able to make a new record deal for her so boom you know I, I, so, the, so the management company kind of was real I had a, a successful act and then one person I did go after after that happened was Bonnie Raitt because I I got to know Bonnie in the context of No Nukes and I just felt that her career was floundering her career was floundering she she was about to be dropped by Warner Brothers which is the label that had made all her early records and her live business had gone down and I just felt um, I just had a feeling that, that she could have um, a, a more of a career she was the, one of the best singers in the world I mean you know for you know no matter what else is going on being a great singer is such a rare thing and uh, and and so I actually did call her and and pitched her on the idea of managing her and she she went for it and uh, uh, around that same time there was a guy named Ron Stone who I knew who had worked with um, Elliot Roberts Neil Young's manager and uh, Ron was looking for something to do and Ron had a real expertise about dealing with concert promoters and booking agents and tour managers the touring side of the business where I had really very limited experience my my orientation had been so much about the media so Ron and I became partners, and and then and together we managed uh, Bonnie's career. And uh, uh, you know, within a couple of years, she won Grammy for Album of the Year. And you know, then I was a successful manager. Now you also managed Nirvana. How did that come Correct. about? Well, after after Bonnie had that success, I had a pretty good company. We had the Allman Brothers. We had Ricky Lee Jones and quite a few other artists, Bella Fleck, and, you know, I, but, but I, I was aware that there was this new generation of, um, of rock and roll that I didn't really understand. You know, by 1990, we're talking about now, I'm 40 years old, uh, you know, I've been around 20 years since I, you know, uh, 21 years since Woodstock, you know, and um, I'd learned a lot about certain aspects of the business, but had certainly lost touch with the pulse of what younger people were into musically. So, and and I knew there were these new bands starting to, to, to emerge that were really um, coming out of the punk subculture, but were doing better than punk bands used to do. I mean, the, the you know, punk bands in the early 80s, you know, would get written about in fanzines or, in, you know, rock critics would like them, but they would sell, you know, 200 tickets. They were very limited in their commercial appeal, and I was trying to make money by this time I'd had my first kid. But now I was seeing artists coming out of the indie label movement and punk movement, you know, alternative movement like like Jane's Addiction and R.E.M. Uh, that were doing real business. And so I looked uh, around, asked around to see if there was a young uh, manager that might want to join a bigger company, and somebody introduced me to John Silva. I don't remember how I met John. Uh, he's now one of the most successful managers in the music business. He's got the Foo Fighters and many, many other important artists. But at that time, he had artists that weren't making any money, uh, even though they were very good, and he needed a, a way to get a salary and a, a partner that knew kind of the major labels, because he, you know. So so we looked for clients together, you know, and we were able to sign Sonic Youth. They, 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 they had just signed with uh, um, Gaffin Records, and they had been a very influential in the indie subculture. Um, uh, they put out several records on indie labels. They toured all over the world. The press loved them. Other artists loved them. But they never, again, they hadn't made money, so they decided finally to try it with a major label. But being on a major label, they wanted to have management. And uh, 
we just met him at the right time. And uh, and then Thurston, and, and I, I immediately realized that Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon and the other people in Sonic Youth, but I particularly, you know, I particularly developed an attachment to Kim and Thurston, um, uh, had their, truly had their fingers on the pulse of what was going on. There were so many artists who were introduced to the subculture by opening the Sonic Youth shows or, uh, you know, being talked about uh, by Sonic Youth. And uh, Thurston uh, told me that... Um, uh, you know, John wanted to sign Nirvana. He'd seen them open to Sonic Youth, and I was always reticent to uh, to have new acts because new acts usually don't pay you anything for a couple of years, and maybe never. But uh, Thurston said they the best band that he'd seen in the previous couple of years, and I completely trusted him. So I agreed that you know to meet with them, and if they wanted us, we would work with them. And and Chris, uh, Dave, and Kurt uh, came. Uh, came to LA, you know, and uh, I, 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 I don't know if they met with other managers, but, you know, they, they met with us, and the next day we were their manager. I think they trusted us for the same reason. Sonic Youth said we were okay, we were okay. Um, and so that's uh, that's how I got involved with Nirvana. And then, you know, by the next year, because of just a set of circumstances that happened in the dynamics of the band, I ended up uh, getting uh, closer to Kurt than I would have expected because I was the older guy and all that. But uh, just, uh, you know, I wrote a book about this called Serving the Servant, Remember Kurt Cobain. It came out last year. Paperback comes out in April of this year. And um, and then I ended up becoming uh, close to him and in the dynamic around the band, that was kind of my role was to be the guy that dealt with Kurt. Now, what was it like as, you know, as you said, you know, a lot of times you don't like to take on new bands because you're not going to make money right away. Nirvana just blew up. I mean, what's that like to be around that feeling of just, I mean, they were the biggest band. It probably takes you back to when you worked with Led Zeppelin. I mean, it was that kind of level. What is that like when you're the manager? It, it was mostly pretty fantastic. I mean, you know, I was really very, very excited to... Uh, to, you know, like you said, it happened quite uh, quickly. Um, Smells Like Teen Spirit was a magic song, a magic recording, and uh, it was one of those things after a week or two of getting uh, radio play, MTV then put it into very heavy rotation, another couple of weeks of that, and it was like a, a, a hit extremely quickly. Went to number one very quickly, and the same thing happened all over the world. That was just one of those songs that just you know, was it totally captured the energy of the moment that the global pop rock mu music audience was was looking for? You know, it was it was the apotheosis of the attitudes of punk, pointing out the kind of the shallowness and hypocrisy of some of what had gone on the last fifteen years. But you know, but but created in the context of an extremely uh, uh, memorable melody and great singer and so it was musically catchy and culturally important at the same time um so the success was incredibly exciting you know and it was just everything i dreamed of i, I was having my moment you know and through my narcissistic eyes of having this incredibly you know important band that uh, now i wasn't the publicist i was you know one of the managers you know of, of, of the band you know now obviously anyone who studied Nirvana knows about them, knows, you know, Kurt developed drug problems, and there were a lot of dramas, and he ended up, you know, tragically uh, killing himself, so obviously 
dealing with the dark side was was dark and 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 scary and depressing. But but the to be involved with such an incredibly talented band at their peak was just one of the uh, greatest things you could hope for. Uh, at the same time, because if you're if you're in my line of work, so it was it was bittersweet because the bitter parts were bitter, but the sweet parts were really sweet. Now, as and a- he was also, and the other thing about Nirvana is. Uh, you know, and again, I was closer to Kurt than the other two guys, but all three of them were terrific human beings, uh, socially conscious, generous to the people around them and to other artists. So it wasn't only successful, it had kind of a cultural, moral, aesthetic component also. So it was, it was, it was, it was really, it was really cool. Now, as a manager, when the band like that is just blowing up, how do you? try to keep an even keel with your other clients because they're going to want the attention. But when you have this band that's so huge, it must take a lot of your time. Well, you know, the, that's a, you have to have enough staff and people have to know what their job is every day and to make sure that nobody gets ignored, you know, and, and, uh, I, I don't feel that was ever a problem for us. I don't remember losing anybody during that period of time. I think that we had a staff of people and, I, I delegated things. John did a lot of the day-to-day work. Uh, uh, I was, uh, you know, uh, you, you know. I, I, I think I think the trick is to have enough staff. It's, it's really management is about time. You know, you have to have the right people spending the time. And smart is better than stupid. Experience is better than inexperienced. You know, but at the end of the day, um, you're in the time business of selling your time, and and you've got to have a staff large enough in proportion to the number of artists you represent so that the time is available to take care of whatever their needs are. Uh, so um, uh, to me, that's the biggest thing. Is And, and, and we had a good staff, and we, we, you know, I'd been doing it long enough to know how to manage the staff. So I don't remember that being a problem. You know, I remember there were daily problems comes up. Somebody's upset, a label is pissing someone off, somebody's sick, you know, I mean, somebody's disappointing in terms of the way the business did. I mean, there's constant drama and stress involved with representing artists, but 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 success is a good thing. Success means that when you call people, they take your call faster, that they're more inclined to do you a favor. You know, that, that helps the other clients more than it hurts them as long as you've got the staffing done correctly. Now, why, what happened to Gold Mountain Entertainment? Um, the name actually continues to exist, but I'm not involved with it. Um, what happened is that, uh, you know, after Nirvana became, uh, successful, um, this is by 92, uh, I had had my first, uh, kid, uh, my daughter Katie, uh, who was then two years old and, uh, was really, um, stressed out about the idea of running a small business. I knew that it was fragile. Uh, it was so dependent on artists who's, you know, wasn't like you don't own any assets. And uh, I was just burned out running a small business, the constant 24-7 demands of paying all the bills. And at the same time, I had, I was at the peak in terms of my reputation in the business because of the one-two punch of being involved with Bonnie when she won the Grammy and then Nirvana. So I looked for a record company job. Uh, I thought it would be the right time to do that. And uh, again, Doug Morris at Atlantic uh, was looking for somebody to come in 
and to kind of be head of A&R on the West Coast. And I had a feeling that if I took that job, I'd have a good chance of becoming president of Atlantic because I knew he wanted to move up in the corporate hierarchy. And that's exactly what happened. So um, I, I left Gold Mountain. Uh, the, the terms of my leaving allowed me to continue to render services for Nirvana, particularly relative to Kurt because of the dynamic I described earlier. And I stayed involved with him and therefore the band until he died, you know. But uh, other than that, I was working for Atlantic, uh, first on the West Coast and then became president of Atlantic. And, uh, you know, that, that, that was the beginning of a six-year period when I was at major labels. Now, was there an adjustment from going from management to running a label? Yeah, yeah some were good, some were bad. I mean, the, the, the great thing about it was... I didn't have to personally pay the bills. I mean, you know, <laughs> to not have to worry about the payroll and people's health insurance and the rent and just the cash flow. I mean, you know, and to just be able to do, you know, to not have all that on me, that pressure, uh, I felt like I got a piece of my life back, which was one of my main, you know, motivations in, in doing it. Um, and so that part of it, uh, was really a great relief to me at that time. Um, a lot of what I was doing uh, was very similar in terms of trying to attract artists. In those times, I was trying to sign artists to the label. Atlantic kind of at that time needed some of these alternative acts, and you know we we, we, were, we got lucky with a bunch of them. You know, Stone Temple Pilots was one of the first ones. Uh, you know, uh, you know, and and and, and some others, and. Um, what I wasn't at all prepared for and never got very good at was, you know, kind of understanding the corporate uh, politics and that whatever I thought was cool or important wasn't necessarily going to be important to the company at any given minute. Um, so I, I, I suffered somewhat from a lack of sophistication about that, and I think that's why I only lasted six years in those companies. But in terms of, uh, at that time, I, 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 I had a network of people and an ability to process what was going on with rock and roll and feel really good about the decisions about who to sign and, and how to market them. I never really became very knowledgeable about hip hop and as the music changed, my value to those kind of companies changed. But, uh, so in terms of signing the acts, getting the records made and figuring out how to market them, that was very similar to what I'd done as a manager, and I felt completely prepared to do a good job doing that. In terms of how to function in a large organization, uh, I never completely mastered it, to be honest with you. But I did the best I could, and you know, there were some good things that came out of it. Now, you mentioned the book, Serving uh, the Servant, and that's, I think, your fourth book. What made you decide to start writing books? Because you, you said earlier said you were never a great journalist, but you, you got the job, so you're a good writer. Well, you know, I, I think that I, I, it always, um, I, I always had the bug. I always thought of myself inside my head as a writer, that, that that's something that I could go back to. Uh, and as I got older, I found my ability to concentrate got better. And and uh, and then um, you know uh, in in the early two thousands uh, you know by this time now I'm in my early fifties I I was um, things were kind of slow 
it, 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 it worked. I don't remember why, and I just got to be in my bonnet to see if I could write the first book. Now, in the intervening previous 10 or 15 years, I had been doing a lot of writing of sort of short pieces about about politics as related to, um, uh, you know, uh, entertainment. And, you know, I was very anti-censorship and was involved with the American Civil Liberties Union. And when I was living in Los Angeles, I, I, uh, the L.A. Times published a lot of my pieces. So I had come back to writing short pieces and developed some confidence that I had something to say. And then um, for some reason I just decided... Uh, that I wanted to do that first book, which was originally published under the name <clears throat> Dispatches from the Culture Wars, and then in an expanded paperback edition, which is the main way it's available now, it's, it's called uh, How the Left Lost Teen Spirit. And it was sort of my rant, about, you know, I'd become really engaged with being a political activist uh, after no nukes for the, for the next 10 years. You know, that kind of, through that I met people and got involved with uh, Again, with the ACLU, free speech issues, there were issues in Los Angeles having to do with the police, and that was during the time of the Rodney King beating, the emergence of gangster rap, and bands like, you know, NWA, and who were, who were criticized by law enforcement, and different things like that, and I, I became active enough, uh, and I developed some opinions, you know, about the flaws of what I thought the left were. So I wrote that book, and I didn't really know how to write a book, but they got me an editor who helped me organize it, and I had to, you know, like typically with my life, I had this uh, confidence for no particular reason, but just decided that I could do it. And um, it was a pretty good experience. It got some good press. I did book events around America. And, uh, you know, I think it's the weakest of my books, but 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 there are, I'm really glad I documented a lot of what I documented. And it, 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 uh, it kind of, this was a pre-Obama book. This was sort of anticipating, you know, you know just, just, just sort of an exhortation to Democrats to reach out to younger people more that I thought that they were too focused on, insufficiently tuned to the culture of young people. I still think that's true. Um, I, actually, with all the years that have, Passed. And then, um, so that was published, I forget what year that came out, but in, in, I'm thinking 2003 was the hardback, 2005 was the paperback. And then, um, and then again, later in that decade, things got slow again, so I decided, okay, I'll do a memoir about being in the rock business, and that was published in 2009 called Bumping into Geniuses. And um, by that time, I, I, I thought about, the, you know, I, I think I think that's that's a, that that book I'm proud of. You know, again, I like all of them, but the first one is the, the writing embarrasses me a little bit. It's a little all over the place. You know, it just kind of rambles on a little bit. And then, um, you know, and then and then that that got a good review in the New York Times, the great validator of a book. You know, and 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 I think it's still available somehow. You know, people tell me they read it every once in a while. And then, uh, you know, another many years passed, and I, uh, and then a few years ago, uh, now that I have this smaller company, uh, I really, um, you know, I had this idea to do something about the 1960s, uh, because I graduated from high school in 67, I'd been so enthralled by the hippie subculture, I felt that a lot of the books about the hippie culture and the 60s focused excessively on the, um, 
68 and 69, the later years of the decade when there was so much violence, the assassinations and the dark side. And I had this vague memory of this more innocent balance. I mean, there was darkness too. Vietnam was raging, but there was a sense of kind of this unusual balance between Eastern spirituality as the Beatles kind of started talking about meditation and things like that and uh, psychedelics, the music, which was just incredible music at that time, and the uh, and the and the two big political movements in America at the time, the Black Power movement and the and the, the anti-war movement. So, and they all kind of interwoven with each other. So, so that book came out a couple of years ago in 2017, which was the 50th anniversary of. 67 and the summer of love and things like that it's called in search of the lost court 1967 and the hippie idea and i really and then that experience was great i really wanted to write another book right away and um and i and i realized that this might be the time to write a book about kurt you know with his 25th anniversary of his death coming up and so that that, that was the next one i wrote and now i'm at the beginning of trying to do one, returning to the themes of the very first book, but in the context of 2020, 2020, instead of, uh, you know, instead of the uh, beginning of this decade, you know, about the relationship between art and politics and the Trump era. So I've been writing some short pieces for The Nation magazine about that, and hopefully sometime next year there'll be another book. But I got to, I just starting out meeting with publishers and so on, right? Well, what you know, you you had you you're writing, you're doing well. What made you get back into management? Well, I never stopped being in the music business. The writing's always been a secondary thing. Uh, you know, my core identity from the time I, you know, got that first job at Billboard was being in the music business, and I still am very grateful to be in it and try to stay in it. This this company that I have now is called Gold Village Entertainment, and I started it about a dozen years ago. I had taken one year off from being in the music business. I, I, I was the CEO of an ill-fated but very well-intentioned radio network called All America Radio, Air America Radio, which was designed to be kind of a left-wing counterpart to the Rush Limbaugh's of the world. And uh, Al Franken had a show on it. He was the star. And then Rachel Maddow you know, was on there, and that's kind of what that's how she enters the media landscape where she's now so dominant was through Air America. So that went bankrupt and, uh, and, and, and I just, you know, what can I do? I, I got, a, I got, you know, I lost all my old relationships, for, you know, um, in terms of, uh, I mean, I had friends, but I didn't have ongoing relationships in the music business. And, and, uh, uh, but I'd stayed friends with Steve Earle, who had, who had made records for uh, uh, Artemis Records, which was a label I had in the first uh, part of the 2000s. And uh, he had a show on Air America, and um, he told me he was looking for a new manager. And I said, well, you know, uh, this thing is going under, and I'm thinking of going back to management. And he called me an hour later, and he said, well, if, you, if, if you're in, I'm in. So that was... Um, you know, that was like uh, 15 years ago, and we've worked together ever since, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, having him allowed me to build this little company that I have now, and I, I, I'm grateful for it. I, I, we have half a dozen artists, all of whom I think are great, and it's a small staff of people, but I'm, I'm proud of the job we do for them, and, and that's, uh, you know, that's sort of, sort of a big part of, you know, that's my A job and my day job, and then it does give me the time to do the writing at the same time. So I look at the kind of the, my days are divided up between the two, but the clients come first. And then if I'm, 
if, if, if the clients are all cool, I'll carve out a few hours to write. And so, so you know, that's been working pretty well the last few years. Now, how did you find these clients? Well, again, they 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 find me. You know, I I, I uh, Steve. Uh, I had originally met uh, when I was at Mercury. Uh, he produced uh, Lucinda Williams' album "Car Wheels on a Gravel Road," which I acquired, and I, I just I had heard other versions of it, and I knew what a good job he had done. So I called him to just tell him how much I respected his production. I'd been a fan of his records, and then when I started Artemis Records, he was the first artist I signed, and uh, and we became friends. You know. Um, and each artist, you know, it's just it's just uh, uh, somebody. Sometimes a talent agent recommends. Sometimes a lawyer. Sometimes another artist. Sometimes a music publisher. Uh, sometimes a friend. And then uh, you know you have meetings. And sometimes I want somebody and they don't want me. Sometimes somebody wants me and I don't want them. And then once a year or so, we want each other. And those are the clients. Now before we go. I know you're involved with Public Citizen. You sit on the board. How did you get involved with them? And tell tell my listeners what Public Citizen is. Um, yes, uh, Public Citizen. I think it's been around for about fifty years, and it's a public interest group uh, that, that uh, you know, nonprofit public interest group that was uh, the outgrowth of Ralph Nader's early work. Um, uh, you know, that was exposing the uh, malfeasance of companies that. Uh, we're doing things that were unsafe. I mean, at first it was the car companies. You know, Nader is known for a lot of different things, but the thing he was first known for was that his investigation of auto safety as a result of which seatbelts became mandatory in cars. When I was growing up, there were no seatbelts, and the reason there are seatbelts is because of Nader, and I think it's millions of people would have been dead if it were not for that. But uh, over the course of time, you know, uh, they he created... So coming out of the fame he had then as a consumer advocate, this, this uh, NGO was created, a non-government organization, a non-profit called Public Citizen, and, and they, 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 they um, have an array of things. They're very involved in uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, drug safety. Uh, they're very involved with trying to get the influence of money out of politics, things like public financing. Uh, during the Trump era, I think they had filed like 100 lawsuits against different aspects of the Trump administration, whether it's in kinds of corruption. Rather than, you know, if anybody's interested, you know, they have a website and it's it's, it's a menu of different uh, things that they do on the, you know, primarily through uh, lobbying and litigation. They're Washington-based. They're not a grassroots organization all over the country. They're Washington-based. They have a staff, I think, 80 people. And they're one of the leading progressive uh, voices on behalf of kind of consumers and individuals versus big corporations and 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 uh, and, and some of the failures of big uh, uh, government. Um, there's a guy on the board who's been on it for a long time named Jim Hightower, who is from Texas, and I had met him a long time ago. He, he's a written many books himself and is one of the real populist kind of geniuses of the American left and uh, a hero of mine. And uh, and he uh, he um, at one point uh, was asked to be one of the people to recruit new board members and asked me to join the board. And I I would certainly never say no to Jim Hightower about anything. And it turned out uh, I, I now share his enthusiasm for the organization. I mean, being on a board is not that big a deal compared to being on the staff. The people who do the work of the staff. But you know they're in board meetings several times a year, and 
you're responsible in theory for the funding. I mean, it's a pretty well, you know, this is a good grassroots. You know, a lot of people give donations to them, and they, they have a pretty sophisticated fundraising operation. But you're still that's part of the job, and to occasionally deal with the policy issues or staff issues that come up. But it, you, you know, I'm honored to be on the board. But it's the people who run it. The guy named Rob Wiseman is the executive director of it that, that deserve the credit for their work. And uh, you know, along with the ACLU and Planned Parenthood and the national, you know, some of the environmental groups. I mean, they're one of the they're one of the great progressive institutions uh, uh, in the guy in the in the country. Yeah, they are great. You know, it's funny. Uh, we had mentioned Steve Scrovan earlier. He had come on yes. my show when I was yes. in L.A. I went to two of the comedy shows that were fundraisers, and there was just it was, they were just so great, and the talent that came out and did them, and it was it was just so fun. Yeah, I met Steve Scrovan through being on the board of, of, of Public Citizen. I didn't know him before, and he's a special guy. He's a film director. He did the the documentary about Ralph Nader. I think it's called The Difficult Man or something like that, but it's, it's the documentary about him. And he's, uh, you know, kind of a comic himself, but extremely well-connected with all of Los Angeles area comics. And for many years, I think it's a... Every year since I've been around, and for several years before that, so it's probably coming up on a decade, he does these annual fundraising comedy events as fundraisers for Public Citizen. And, uh, yeah, it's really cool. He gets like, a, you know, eight, ten of the you know top people, and, and uh, it's funny, and it's political. And, you know, in this Trump era in particular, I think comedy has become just such an important component to the culture. It's like, you know, when I was growing up, we used to talk about, you know, well, music is the soundtrack of our times. You know, the R&B connected to the civil rights movement, some of the rock and roll connected to the anti-war movement. To me, the soundtrack of the Trump era is comedy. I mean, the amount of political comedy is just mind-blowing. Every, you know, it seems like every late-night comic gets into politics, and you go on Netflix, and especially after special after special, you know, whether it's Chelsea Handler or Kathy Griffin, or, you know, it's just incredible. You know, Chris Rock, George Lopez... Um, so uh, comedy really is playing an important role now, I think, in kind of uh, how America is defining itself as sort of part of the mix. There's so many different things happening all at the same time, but it's a, it's an amazing age for political comedy. I, I can't remember anything ever like it. Well, you know, I want to thank you for coming on. It's so funny, when I saw you in the documentary, I said, this guy knows is the biz. And uh, now Serving the Servant will come out in paperback when? Uh... April, I forget the exact date, but soon, you know, sometime first couple of weeks of April. Right, well, great. I want to thank you. Uh, how can people look you up? I know it's the website for the uh, management company is goldve.com. Yeah, goldve.com is the best place if anyone, you know, there's an address there where if people want to send an email to me through the company website, they, you know, I think it's info at goldve.com, and it's got a bio of me and a list of our clients, so that's probably the best uh, the best place to start. Okay, so people, check out Danny. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 775 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. And follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you.